Good day, you're very welcome to the RTE Rugby Podcast. I'm Michael Glennon. On the panel today, we have Wes Liddy, Bernard Jackman and Donald Lenehan. How are we all doing, folks? Good. Good stuff. Very good. Um, we'll jump straight in. Ireland uh, played Italy at the weekend, 48-10, probably par for the course, Donald. But was there anything, uh, with the caveat that Italy are very poor, um, was there anything that you learned from this Ireland team or about Andy Farrell? Uh, well, firstly, I think the the team that he announced on the um, on the Thursday, I thought was there was something very exciting about the team. Seven changes. I thought there was great balance to the side. Um, I thought it was great to see a lot of the players who had made good impacts off the bench were being rewarded for that. Um, I had been kind of waiting all along to see that kind of uh, the trio of of Henderson, Ryan, and Byrne. Uh, put together in the same squad uh, and I thought, you know, um, a lot of question marks, can Byrne perform at a pro international level? Uh, again, obviously, uh, you know, you've got to take the opposition into consideration, but uh, I always felt comfortable, I must say, with that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we know just how, you, when you're talking about the Southern Hemisphere, South Africa, England, uh, France, that physicality that they bring, so to bring in an extra line-out forward, uh, you know, you are sort of raising the overall level of physicality in the forward. So from that point of view, uh, I thought it worked really well. Um, so as I say, from the outset, you know, I was, I, I thought it was a very well-balanced side. Uh, I thought that, you know, all of the stuff that obviously an attack that they've been looking to do came to fruition, albeit, um, you know, defensively, Italy were shocking. Uh, I suppose the most pleasing aspect is the fact that we backed ourselves, we didn't kick as much. Um, you know, they've been talking about this heads up rugby for some time now, and you could see players reacting to situations on the field. Uh, most noticeably that that Hugo Keenan try, which I thought was was probably the score of the afternoon. Uh, yeah, so look, overall, really promising. I think uh, it gives the squad the boost they were looking for at a crucial time. But I think there is a, a an understanding and reality that, uh, you know, we've two harder games coming down the track. So for me, interesting to see if they can carry the good things out of Italy into the last two games against Scotland and not revert to type when the pressure comes on. So, I mean, that for me will be the most interesting aspect of the two games that are left in the championship. Bernard, did you notice anything that maybe the, the casual viewer or the, didn't notice from a coaching perspective? They played with loads of intent, you know, high works of energy. That's never been a question. It was, it was how everything connected was probably the question mark. And I, and I think they will get a little bit of confidence from, you know, some of their attack and play, as Donald said. Uh, but also, the challenge really is is to, is to implement it against a defence that's not as porous as, as Italy. But they probably needed that. It came at the right time, I think. Um, they needed a win to validate the work they're doing, to give them that feel-good factor. But Scotland, with Steve Tandy coaching the defence, um, it's a different matter. And also, you know, we'll be tested defensively against Scotland. And I'm not 100% sure we're all on the same page um, in that aspect. And ironically, England, actually, and I know we'll talk about them in a second, they, start, they actually played some of their best rugby tournaments in terms of um, in, in terms of getting the ball to wit, they went away a little bit from the from the kick chase game. Now, even they still kick too much, but, but you know, I think over the next two games we're going to get tested, um, definitely defensively, but also 
We'll find out if this new attacking framework can handle a team with line speed and good line integrity, which Italy didn't have. So, um, it, look, it, it was it was good. It was as you said, it was about par. You know, the other teams. The only thing I would say is, I think, interestingly, I think the Irish players nearly, you know, talked it up too much. I mean, you know, I look back at what England, and France said after putting Italy to the sword, and you know, they weren't talking about it if it was a. Um, a talismanic moment in their in their journey, you know, it was literally it's a given, it's a given to get a bonus point against them. We did it, you know, and the the, the challenge now is to is to beat Scotland or England. Yeah, I know. When we were speaking to Andy Farrell and Johnny Sexton after the match, I think they were probably expecting a little bit more kudos for getting it done. When we did the, the subject quickly moved on to Scotland yeah. or quickly moved on to what can get better, and I don't think they appreciate that too much, but. Um, one point that did come up, and I was just thinking about it over the last couple of weeks, or about Hugo Keenan. Like Ireland have had a problem at fullback for the last since Rob Carney really uh, move, moved on from a, from an automatic choice. So I would be of the opinion that Hugo Keenan has done enough. He, he looks more like a fullback than the other guys who were tested in Robbie Henshaw and Jacob Stockdale and Jordan Larmer. And Andy Farrell kind of said a few guys moved into the non-debatable category would would you agree with that that Keenan and maybe Ty Berner guys who will always get the starting jersey certainly closer to it anyway but no I don't think I don't think ideally anyone is guaranteed a starting jersey but yeah I think Hugo Keenan's in there for the minute but he, he obviously likes what he sees from Jacob Stockdale going by past selections as well so I'm sure he'll come back into the mix Ty Byrne is probably a debatable to make the Irish 23 into on form uh, being a Lions selection at this stage for a tour that the mayor men obviously, but I, I, I suppose like I, I didn't really pick up on what Bernard said until he actually just said it there, but it, it, they probably were very um, maybe overly um, about the merits of the performance considering the level of opposition and like look fair play for getting or whatever it was and, and winning by over 30 points you can't carp too much but like Italy were average at best in defence and um, I suppose there was talks that it took a lot of courage to the, the performance and the style that they did but really I think there's a bit of a security blanket trying that against Italy when you you, you know you know the opposition is, is fairly malleable so I think the courage actually comes from can they play in that same style regardless of result the next day out but the, the positive for me was we were talking about clarity last week and there was clarity and purpose this week and for the first time since probably the French game last season I think the selection actually mirrored what select made sense in terms of the way they were trying to play even if you look at the front row that was selected with with three ball carriers there compared to some that were picked over the last few weeks and um, Things just seemed much better aligned this week. And I know Johnny Sexton always comes up in our conversations, especially with, with you, but to, to be fair to him, he lasted the 80 minutes. He kicked eight out of eight. And it's probably his best game in a long time. Um, you know, it really showed why he how he does make the Ireland team tick, Donald. Yeah, look, Johnny Sexton was outstanding. Um you know, eight out of eight, that kind of conversion right at the death of the Keith Earls try. Uh, I've no doubt in his own mind, he knew he had an unblemished kicking performance up to that. Um, so he wanted to nail it, which he did. Uh, you saw his reaction when they leaked the try just in half time. He was raging with them defensively. There's no doubt that when Johnny Sexton 
um, in the form that he was in last game, Ireland performed so much better. Uh, and the evidence is still there over what we've seen throughout the, the autumn campaign and indeed in the Six Nations today. It's up to the others to get up to his standard. Uh, I wasn't in the least surprised that it, uh, the RFU announced a one-year extension. We had spoken about this in the past. I think one year is right. Um, you know, when you get to his stage in, in his career, I, I think that's all he may have expected himself. Um, but look, so we know what's, he's there now for the next 12 months. Uh, brilliant is Joey Gabry coming back on, on uh, Friday night. Obviously, look, he's a long way off being involved at this level. Uh, you just hope that he can sort of get more game time over a couple of months. And um, when you're, you know, get to the start of next season, be a contender then. But, um, oh, look, Sexton is still uh, a vital ingredient in the setup. But, um, you know, as you, you, you mentioned, overall winners, like I think Keenan tick the boxes in terms of, you know, the basics of full back play in terms of his positional sense, uh, his solidity under the high ball. His kicking game, I think we all accepted that he had those attributes, you know, long before last weekend. But you you always wondered, you know, he, he always had that attacking flair and intent there. He's come through the, the sevens uh, program. Uh, I think he, you know, he, he, he looks as if he could offer the same solidity that Carney gave us for 10 or 12 years, but maybe offer something different in attack. Now, Carney wasn't often sort of tasked with um, a counter-attacking from deep was always seen to be, you know, make contact, recycle the ball and play from there. But, uh, you know, Keenan, uh, I agree with you in terms of certainly the more recent trialists at fullback and Stockdale and Lammer. Um, I think from a, a team point of view, he gives that little bit more solidity, certainly from a forward's perspective. You know, when the ball has been put back there, it, it's always great. You know, there's a rock back there, as Kearney had been for so long. Uh, Keen certainly produced that. Uh, Byrne, I agree with Wes. I think if you're if you're um, Warren Gatland in a Lions context, it's brilliant to have a player who can play across a number of positions. Uh, it gives uh, it's hugely important when you're on tour and you build up injuries and you need some players to play out of position at times. So he'd be invaluable if or when that happens. Uh, another one, I think, two others up front. Uh, Dave Kilcoyne, for me, outstanding. Uh, Keen Healy, you know, uh, was it 106, 107 caps? Um, he's been there a long time, but I think really been pushed now for that starting slot by Kilcoyne. And Ronan Kelleher, uh, we all know what he could do in broke play, set piece. He's a good scrummager. Like the, the, I suppose the focus point had always been on his throwing. But I've seen this, you know, over the years, like the best of players and the best of hookers, they, early in their career, there's always this question mark about throwing. Uh, Keith Wood had it for a long time. Um, I think Keller has the makings of a, an outstanding international player. Um, and hopefully, you know, I, I, I think he's earned his right to start against uh, Scotland, as has... Dave Kulkine, in my opinion. We won't spend long on this, guys, but it has been topic of conversation about Italy's place in the Six Nations. And I suppose, what message would it send out? Like, World Rugby have on their website that it's the mission to grow the game. But when we see the amount of work that's gone on to getting Italy into the Six Nations and where they are now, what message would it send out if someone like the Pumas or the Springboks came in? What message would it send out to the 
the wider sporting world about rugby itself, how it sees itself more of a kind of our thing. Is there a, is there a duty on rugby to, to keep Italy in it and keep promoting teams like that to show them there, there is a, a target, there is a goal they can reach? Yeah, I, I, I'm in favour of having, having an opportunity for the tier two countries in, in Europe to at least play a playoff. Um, and I know it's, it affects a team like Italy or, or even Ireland on a bad year to have to go play that playoff. But I just think it makes it more interesting. At the moment, I don't see any enough development in, in, in rugby to say that they're on the right track. And having that guaranteed entry hasn't really paid off over the last 15 years. Um, so if they're good enough to beat a Georgia or a Russia um, or whatever, then they, they keep their place. But, um, and I used the example on against the other night of an English premiership place, Harlequins, Northampton in, in France, Racing 92, being relegated. And I know some people said, oh, yeah, but and Italy can't. It wasn't just that. It was the fact of the benefits of having played a season where you're used to winning can have on a team. And I know when I went to Grenoble, uh, my first year, you know, we got promoted in Pro D2, so we'd won 80% of our games. And that belief and feel-good factor helped us compete with bigger teams in, in the first year. And then as you as you spend three, four seasons at the bottom of the table surviving, you know, it affects ability. So I don't necessarily think Italy getting relegated uh, if they lose a playoff would be the end of them. It'd be very difficult, but it might make them more focused on, you know, their infrastructures to be able to be more competitive. And at the moment, let's be honest, you know, we're having some great Italy, you know, it's going to be 40 points. And uh, I, I, I don't think that that's... Let them, let them beat the best of the rest. Um, I wouldn't kick bring in South Africa or Argentina, but I would say to Italy or whoever finishes bottom of the, of the Six Nations, go go play a playoff match. And even if it's a home for Italy or Ireland or Scotland or England or France, fine. But at least have that um, the danger. I look, it's 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 the perennial problem. I mean, one year is in the championship now, and they're worse now than like they were better twenty years ago than they are now. They were more competitive then. Uh, I don't know how, you know, you you look at Benetton looked as if they were kind of like they nearly made the, the they pushed Munster and was it in a quarter final playoff or, uh, in the pro you know, only a few years ago. Um, their fall from grace is alarming, really. Um, and I don't know how, like, they, they, I think 14 of their fifth, well, they, in fact, the whole, when um, uh, when Varney, the scrum half, had to cry off, were all Italian-based players. Um, you know, on average, they're winning two or three matches a year. I mean, how you can keep that competitive age, how you can keep turning up for training on a Monday morning, Knowing with the best will in the world, uh, you know, you're probably going to get another tonking at the weekend. Right now, for me, the problem I have with Italy is that if you're not winning a Grand Slam, then the championship has been decided by who's the most points again. I mean, even the, the bonus point is a given no. So much getting five points from them. It's what is your points differential when you finish? And, and France kind of benchmark early when they, they were plus 40 after the first game. Now, Italy are normally competitive in the early games in the championship. So to lose their first at home, remember, by 40 points was a, was a shocking start, really. Um, 
Like I had favored them, you know, given them the opportunity for a long time, but I've, I've come to the stage now where they're, they're just adding nothing to the championship. So they're going to have to try something else. If it's going to be, you know, giving George that opportunity at that relegation playoff, so be it. Try something. Stress Italy into understanding that if they're not performing, they could lose their place at the top table. Right now, there is no consequence for them losing every game in the championship. They've lost the in a row now. Uh, and the margin between them and the rest is getting wider. There has to be a consequence from that somewhere. Whether that's relegation and given the likes of Georgia their opportunity. I mean, let's face it. If Argentina came into this championship and based themselves in Spain, put the whole new dynamic onto uh, the, the Six Nationship as we know it. And uh, right now, Argentina are probably in more need for love than else because they're not part of um, uh, the, the Jaguars or Super Rugby. So as of now, the club player had brought back to Argentina and, and were playing there for the past number of years. They're all dispersed all over Europe now again anyway. So um, I would argue into the world game, we need Argentina to be vying up there for the top four or five to bring more competition to World Cups. Italy are never going to get to that stage from what we've seen in terms of their development in the last 20 years. So, But overall, for me, there has to be consequences. You're, you're distorting the Six Nations, let's be honest about it. It was probably an anomaly, the team they had 20 years ago, in, a, in hindsight. Bakari and Dominguez and Stoica and all these guys, and it was probably the remnants of their club game was actually professionalised very early. <coughs> you think of it like Paisley and that playing over there in the 90s. But like obviously in a sporting sense, it, it seemed like they get rid of them. And I know Eddie said on Against the Head the other night that you know, when there's private investors running things that want to see these, these kind of jockey shoots. But equally, no chance that a private equity company are going to turn their back on a market of 65 million people and major broadcasters like Sky Italia and Roy and people like that. So the, the notion that to boost the bottom line or Georgia are going to replace Italy, it's certainly not going to be for that reason. Whatever about bringing in a, an established big hitter like South Africa or Argentina. I don't think we're... I'm talking about Italy. I'm not talking about from a, a financial point of view. I understand that the, um, they do bring a lot in terms of um, you know, TV money and they are a shareholder in the, in the Six Nations. But um, I'm talking from a pure sport point of view. I think it doesn't help the tournament. The Six Nations having you know, these turkey shoots uh, every, every round. And um, look at the Pro 14. It's a, it's a factor in the Pro 14 that you... You know, you can be uncompetitive and there's no consequence and it doesn't help the competition. So that's all. I mean, if we want to have a strong Six Nations in time, there should be a consequence for it. That's all. Very good. But I agree with you. It's not going to, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Donald, Wales are the Triple Crown champions. How are Wales the Triple Crown champions? <laughs> yeah, well, none of us saw that coming. Um, but look, you can argue about you know, obviously, the, the Peter Romani was a big incident in the Ireland game. I, I still believe that had that not happened, Ireland would have won the game. Um, Scotland were coasting to Vic in, in Murrayfield. Um, but you've got to look at Wales and say, hey, I know Wayne, Wayne Pivak, I've met him. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, he was under massive amounts of pressure 
but he he reminds me of in a way in that he backs himself he's not afraid to take the hard decisions he blooded a lot of younger players during that autumn season at Wales stage I think they were without uh, up to 21 players in, in, in available for selection so uh, no look there's no question they, they they bought a bit of time uh, with what happened against Ireland but uh, the basics of their game have improved measurably. Their set piece had been shocking in the autumn. Uh, uh, they've made a couple of changes there. I think he tried to bring many ball carriers up front at one stage. He went back to uh, getting solidity in a scrum by bringing Thomas Francis and Jones back into the team. Uh, their line-out improved once uh, Ken Owen came back at Hooker and Adam Baird went into the second row. Uh, and defensively, uh, getting Jenkins seems to have made a huge difference there. So that changes over a short period of time. But the one thing you've got to say about this Welsh side, and we've spoke numerous times in the past, how uncompetitive the same players are at Pro 14 level. Uh, even going back to the, the game against uh, England at the weekend, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the two incidents and the, the tries that could have been. But on one side, England got back to 24 all. And the final quarter of the game, Wales blew England away. So therefore, they have made huge strides. Uh, a lot of it due to the bravery of their management. Uh, I said it at the time, I thought that the ballsiest decision that I'd seen in the Six Nations was against Scotland. And this was before Xander Fagerson got sent off. Uh, and Dan Bigger off 40, 43 minutes into the game, uh, throwing in Hardy, who who I hadn't seen much of before at Scrum Half, and Callum Sheedy, who is a player, obviously, that we're interested in over here, given that he played under the team level. Um, I, I thought that was a really brave decision, and they got the rewards for it. He did the same um, last weekend. Um, so, therefore, it's easy to dismiss Wales as the luckiest team or this and that. Uh, they have had breaks. There's no question about that. But you've got a vision to take this. I mean, the bottom line is Scotland, for all the improvements they've made, for all the, 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 the huge boost of the win over England in Twickenham, when a bit of pressure came on against them, against Wales, um, I remember I reacted way better after Peter Romani was sent off. Now, they still could have won the game despite being down to 14 men for so long, whereas Scotland, the minute Ferguson got sent completely. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I think it is unfair to Wales to put that triple crown down to purely luck. There was a lot of work that's been going on. There was a lot of things that came to fruition. And again, you saw that bit of steel with those Welsh players. And the likes of Adam Jones. I mean, people were writing him off again, 35 years of age. I thought he was outstanding over the weekend. Um, he always seems to deliver biggest of stages. Um so therefore, look, good luck to them. Uh, personally, I'm delighted for PVAC. Uh, I hope that, that Wales-France game goes ahead because that could be a cracker. Um, but they, they've made the, the trip. It's been a fantastic championship. If you take out those Italian games, all the other games have been riveting and Wales have played their part in that hugely. Yeah, and as you mentioned there, just for, for context, so Wales won 40-24 and the two of their tries were clearly just not tries. It was a, an obvious knock-on and then the referee signalled to, to restart the play when England weren't ready. It's, it's unusual. I know, Bernard, you were talking about referees recently, but it's, un, it's unusual to see two 
errors of that magnitude in international rugby because with the TMO, they're generally sorted out between the two of them. So, I mean, it had a bearing, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I do appreciate Donald's point about the Wales have kind of got, have made the most of the luck that they've got. Yeah, I think for Donald, I think Wales have uh, got confidence now and just the Port of Wales win against Ireland got them back on track. And when you have guys like Faletau, Bigger, uh, Liam Williams, you know, they might have been in, in form, but once they get a spark like that, um, they're a quality team. And, and you know, I, I think they've turned a corner now, which is which is brilliant and probably kind of feeds into why I think Ireland needs Scotland or England, you know, to have that, you know, big win for this team because they haven't had it yet, uh, realistically. We beat the team, we, we beat a poor Scotland team in, in Dublin last year, poor Welsh team. We, we need a win. Um, in terms of the refereeing, look, it's surprising that it happened with no crowd in the stadium. You know, it's, it's less intense than normal. Okay, the intensity on the field is huge, but I just think there's, there's been a bit of an issue in terms of, you know, who we make TMO as well and not having any specialist TMOs or, or a referee with a TMO that he really trusts. And I know speaking to Nigel Owens, his, he's, he felt he always refereed the best when he had Derek Bevan as his TMO, just there was that, that trust and understanding of what each other, you know, look for um, and, and the communication style. So I think chopping and changing TMO all the time um, hasn't necessarily helped. And I know there's issues with travel with, with, with COVID, et cetera. But look, it was unfortunate for Pascal goes there. I think he's a good referee. He, you know, and a fair play to him. He came out afterwards and said, look, he, he, um, he made a mistake on, on both counts. And, you know, the scary thing for me was, you know, we saw the, the second one, the knock on, uh, or the legend knocked or the knock on and uh, we're all like knock on and then they're going into the, the video and the rule book and you're seeing things that you just haven't seen in your whole life being being called you know and just common sense would have been no one would have would have went look at that's that's a try um, if you had said knock on but um, maybe it's just probably pressure I don't know what it is but at the moment it's just not working uh, both in the, in the provincial game um, and obviously that was a high profile error for, for Pascal and his team but um, look at hopefully hopefully that's the, that's the one blip in the tournament and the rest of the tournaments we're talking about the quality of, of play because I thought it was some really good play in that Welsh England game and the France-Scotland match that was postponed is now being pencilled in for the end of this month so it looks like you know that they would wrap the Six Nations up in a reasonable time so <clears> it's down for the 26th of March and they've got the buy-in it looks like they've got the buy-in from the Fra French and English clubs Wes um, considering how the postponement came about or how we think it came about um, and the acknowledgement that France did break the bubble with Galti going to see a match the guys off in Rome for a bit of a wonder um, should, is it not a case for France to uh, forfeit that match 28-0 if, the, if their philosophy is let them eat waffles should, surely they should have to pay for those waffles yeah in hindsight it certainly looks like that um... I think at the time when it first happened, you know, with the whole situation we're living in, it, it, it's hard to kind of, uh, you know, victimise people for something that's happening on such a widespread basis. But when you hear willfully broke bubbles and all the rest of us, it seems more and more like uh, like it should be a, a null and void. But I'm not quite sure why it hasn't been brought up really or, or, or why... I mean, there's been no mention of it from Six Nations at all as, as even a possibility. So, look, I, I probably personally don't want to see that happen anyway. You want to see the tournament resolved on the field of play. But, um, 
Yeah, it is. It is strange that with the evidence coming to light that uh, no one's been held to account except by their own by their own government. It seems. It's even it's even worse though. Was in the context that the French were the ones who wanted the the ground rules tightened coming into this championship. We know that they they caused the postponement or the cancellation, or as it was, of rounds three and four of the Champions Cup. They felt that the, the testing, as it was at the time, the COVID testing was happening five days before the match. They felt that was three days before the match. The six, to be fair, brought that in and made that adjustment. Um, but, but the French were really asking questions of all the other participants. And yet they're the ones who've made the blatant uh, breaches. And again, we're talking about consequences for it. You would feel that have to be consequences for France. But, uh, to be fair, that has to be set out in the rules before. You can't change the rules halfway through the competition yeah. because interested in your one and your 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 world for a bit of a wander. I mean, Jesus, international rugby. When we're we're coming to the stage now where you can't walk out the door of the hotel. Uh, obviously, we're in strange times, but uh, yeah, it does it does seem incredibly. Uh, laps that fairness, it's the national coach, the one who's sorry, but yeah. Uh, if if Ernest Stones, the, the waffles in Rome are particularly good. Oh well, they are. Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. I got the they're better. To they're better in Tbilisi, I hear. <laughs> Well, I, I'd be honest, Birch, if I got the chance to go to Rome last week in 19 degrees, the waffles I'd be chasing. Please, the uh, bit of pasta and the moretti would be going down well. A cold peroni, a cold peroni. Yeah, in fairness, it was the FFR weren't the ones who wanted the stricter protocols. It was, if you remember, it was a couple of clubs who didn't want to play round three and round four um, at the time, and there was relegation issues, things like that. Did they put the pressure on the Ministry of Sport? And they obviously, you know, ratcheted up the, the protocols. Um, and in fairness, the FFR historically wouldn't be great uh, in terms of protocol. And it's, it's really bitten them on the, on the ass. Yeah. yeah. But even the, the thing, Birch, with, I found it a bit strange. I thought that the odds would be cocooned together for the two-month period of the six weeks. In other words, that they were going into their respective camps and that was it, they were spied to their families and they wouldn't be seen again. But that hasn't been the case. I mean, obviously all the squads no. in that three or four day period, you know, when you've the two weeks before the matches, they've been able to go home and go into their own family bubble. So from that point of view, Galtier can say, well, look, you know, how, how different is that to me going to watch my son playing outdoors? Um, but look, that's an argument for another day. The bottom line is it's I personally, I'm delighted that that game now appears to be fixed for the, the 26th or 27th, uh, that both the French clubs have said they'd release their Scottish players like um, uh, Finn Russell from, from Racine and the Premiership clubs will release their Scottish players as well, which it's a kind of a, a united front that we haven't seen from the clubs, which was interesting. Uh, but I have to say for the... Um, integrity of the championship. I'm thrilled that it's now only going to be extended by six days, that we will have an outcome. Uh, now, the thing could even be resolved prior to that. If France were to be, or sorry, if Wales were to be, like we're assuming that Wales are going to beat Italy uh, next week. Um, so you have a Grand Slam showdown between 
well, Wales going to, to, to France. If Wales won it, it you know, then they're champions on merit. Um, but at least we're not waiting till July to get an overall outcome from the um, uh, the cha- I mean, postponing it to July would have been a complete and utter disaster. So at least I think we should be happy for the small mercies that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just on that note as well, it's it's a real sign of the times that the Ireland women were up at a training camp this weekend in Dublin, and then the news came through on Monday that they had a semi, effectively a World Cup qualifier semi final against Spain, which will happen in in on the thirteenth of March. Um, so they go to Madrid if. They win that they would play either Scotland or Italy for a place in the in the World Cup. And then last night, World Rugby have announced that subject to ratification that the, the women's tournament will be postponed for a year. I mean, in one way, it's good that there's clarity about it, but it's a real sign of the times, isn't it? Yeah, I would imagine that the logistics of trying to bring all those countries together at this point in time for a World Cup, would it, it's nightmare stuff. Uh, and we've seen, like, New Zealand have handled um, the whole COVID scenario better than most. But yes, you know, they had another breakout break in Auckland, a, a seven-day closure there. Um, and, you know, I can imagine from the, from the New Zealand, given the work that they've put into keeping their country COVID-free, you know, all these teams coming in from all over the world, uh, given that we're still, we're, we're a long way to go in terms of the vaccination programme, Look, I think it's the best uh, decision. I think the training, anyway, for for a lot of the women's team, uh, a lot of the, I know, I know from the Irish women, they've played little or no matches over the past couple of months anyway. So I don't think you'd see any of those teams performing at their best if the tournament was going ahead uh, as, as it's scheduled. So maybe it's for the best in the longer term, albeit you obviously understand the disappointment for, for the girls who've been training so hard to get there. They were called to a meeting last night at six o'clock, uh, and that was the first that the squad had heard of it. So it was very sudden it happened, but I suppose it's understandable, as Donald said, and at the, in the current times. So I, I know I spoke to Fiona on Monday about it. Fiona Coughlin, and she, now she said basically the problem would be the extra two weeks quarantine as well for New Zealand. You know, you're talking about amateur players taking ten weeks off off work, which is going to make it very difficult. So um, I suppose it's understandable. Hopefully this time next year we can they can have a proper to- a, a tournament without the same complications. Wes, what did you make of the opening week of um, Super Rugby? Obviously, awfully had great interest in it. Jack Regan uh, making his debut for the Highlanders. Uh, probably did enough to keep himself off the awfully hurling team for a while. Um, and got a, a, a nice welcome from Joe Moody. Yeah, just unbelievable, really, how uh, how well he's gone. And he's not the first. We saw Ali Yeager and a few others last year as well. But strange that he's gone through two provinces now and never kind of deemed to keep him. But yet he's good enough to uh, to rock up for the Highlanders. So, um, yeah, very interesting to watch him. But I suppose the tournament in general, like I was talking to Birch about it over the weekend, like you could, you could probably find fault with some of the defensive approaches. But... As a spec, um, you know, if, if for something that you're looking to attract n- new viewers to the sport, or or even to keep existing ones interested, um, just the quality of the attack and play, but obviously the the crowd's been in the ground as well. It makes a difference. There's nothing we can do, but I mean, you'd certainly be looking at the likes of the Pro 14 games, and and it, it really pales how it's how it's packaged and and marketed by by comparison. Never mind the quality on the pitch. <laughs> 
it just go back to the Jack Regan one. I mean, it's it's a I admire young fellas like that. Things don't work for them. They, you know, they have the balls to go away and take a chance elsewhere. I mean, I watched him play. He played for Balnehintro actually against Khan in the league match only last year, uh, or the season, whatever the season prior to that. Um, I remember his, his uncle was down watching the match. His dad. Um, so it's amazing to you know he took it. He obviously came through the system in Leinster, went to Ulster, was a part of the setup there. Um, you know, I know the Ballina Hinge lads spoke very highly of him, the way he sort of immersed himself in there. It didn't work out in Ulster for whatever reason. Um, he finds himself, you know, up against Sam White locked in last week, which is a, a achievement. Probably the biggest achievement was was learning to do the hacker, have a special variety of the hacker. No, I didn't notice they kind of hid him in behind in the in the backfield. He wasn't sticking out his tongue as much as the other fellas, but uh, that's probably as big an achievement for an uh, athlete man than anything else. Yeah, it was the rattling bug version of the hacker, I think. <laughs> it's a bit of us, yeah. Um, okay, Donald, you're on commentary duty on uh, Friday night for Munster v Connacht, um, and it's the same week now that Billy Holland announced that he will he will retire at the end of the season. He's great, been a great servant uh, to to Munster rugby. Incredible, really. I mean, 241 caps. He's, he's 17 years in the system. You take out his three years in the academy. That's 14 years uh, in the front line. Uh, he had to bide his time. You know, when he came out to me, uh, you had Paul O'Connell, Donico Callaghan, Mick O'Driscoll and uh, Donico Ryan all coming through. He was kind of uh, more seen as a back row at that stage, um, but he stuck in there. Um his durability is incredible. So, like, all, like at various times over the years, all those players went through sort of injuries. Um, yet he always seemed to be there in the midst of guys. He survived, uh, you know, at stages. You know, Munster brought in uh, so many overseas players. You had uh, uh, Grobler, um, You had, uh, oh God, uh, Mark Chisholm, ex-Australia, John Klein. And yet he always seemed to outlast them. Uh, he's a very intelligent forward. He adds something different. Um, you know, we've spoken so much about the key role of the line-out all-caller in the modern game. And, and Billy is second to none. He's a student area. Learned a huge amount there from, from Paul O'Connell. Um, but he's, you know, even the fact now, obviously with Snayman, hopefully he'll be back by the end of the year. John Klein, I have to say, playing better rugby. I've seen him play for a long time. I thought he was outstanding against the other night. Uh, you have Witcherly in there, uh, Thomas Carmore. So I think the time is right for Billy to leave. He's 35 years of age. Uh, he goes and knows important to him. Um, so look, he's been an outstanding performer for Munster for a long, long time. People have written him off time and time again. He keeps coming back. So look, uh, I know he's he's probably appreciated more in the dressing room than outside of it, but... Uh, his contribution for Munster over the last 15 years has been phenomenal. Just as we finished recording last week, uh, the sad news came true that Gary Halpin had died aged 55, uh, a very young age, um, for a former international. And, you know, when I thought of him growing up, every time I heard the name, I didn't know the man, but just it brought a smile to my face, obviously, from remembering the way he played and specifically what he did after scoring the try against New Zealand. Don, what are your memories of uh, Gary? 
Yeah, Gary, look, I mean, you, you've heard so and read and, and heard from so many people over the last week. I mean, I have to say I was shocked when I heard the news. Um, uh, I hadn't seen him for a while, but, uh, you know, as, as everybody has said, like every time you met Gary, you came away feeling better about yourself. He's just infectious way about him, infectious way of bringing people with him. Uh, I'd obviously remember in school in Rockwell um, uh, when he came to and, and scholarship to uh, to New York athletics wise. Remember, he, he came into the Irish squad towards the end of my place. Um, but uh, he he just, even when people didn't know him, after five minutes, he kind of took over the room. Uh, but I remember uh, it was around 1990, um, Jimmy Davidson was ahead of his time in terms of physical preparation and that. And the whole squad, we were brought up to Belfast for a week uh, where we, we, we were going through all the tests. Um, Jimmy was big into a, a weighing, which we were only kind of, I suppose, dipping in and out of the time. But Jesus, Gary, having come out of the athletic room, we went in, we had this kind of assessment the first morning we got together and he was throwing the weights around like kids in a candy store. He was at a totally different level in terms of his explosive power than all of us. But, uh, I remember that later that day, supposed to be in Belfast for three days. Jimmy Davidson resigned from the IRFU after the first day. So we had two days in Belfast. And uh, Jesus, you can imagine now, we were all there. Uh, there was no management there as such. They were trying to keep us involved. And of course, I remember one night they tried. They brought us to a play to try and keep us out of the pub, which lasted about. But Gary and Kenny Murphy, I think at the time, got into this fit of laughing inside in the middle of the the, the production. Got thrown out. So that was kind of our first real interview. Um, but uh, look, he was he was also in the World Cup squad. Ironically, um, I, it looked as if we were destined not to play with each other. I the first. I got my first cap in 81 and I played every international game up to 1990. And I got a, I, I smashed my nose badly the weekend before we were due to play England. So I missed that game. The first game I missed in nine or ten years, Gary got his first cap. I was back for the game against Scotland, but Gary got dropped after that game. Uh, and then World Cup, um, four matches in the 91 World Cup. Uh I think I played three, Gary played one. We didn't get to play in the same game. I never actually played with him for Ireland, but I was, you know, being in this company in a World Cup squad there for six weeks was just, it was, was laugh a minute stuff. He was just a brilliant character. And at times, I think that kind of overshadowed just how powerful and how good a rugby player he was. But um, look, 55 years of age, he's a very young man in the modern day context to, to lose your life suddenly like that sitting at home with his family. Um, and I know we're, we're talking about having a reunion now of that World Cup 30 years on that squad. Um, we had one of the 87 group a couple of years ago. And thankfully, all the players who'd been involved were still hailing and happy and alive. Um, so it's it'll be poignant when they do come together that, that Gary won't be there. But look, it's, it's a shocking blow for his family, his wife and his kids. And uh, I think you've seen the outpouring of grief over the past week. And uh, because he was in London Irish as well, a huge uh, connection with rugby and played for Harlequins. So uh, yeah, we've, we've lost a really good one there in Gary.
Thanks very much, uh, Donald Bernard and Wes. Um, the Interpro matches um, Munster against Connacht on Friday night and Ulster against Leinster on Saturday are on Radio 1 Extra and Radio 1 and there'll be live blogs on the RT website. Thanks very much, gentlemen. We'll chat to you next week.